All right. Well, uh, well, Jesus is actively at work. As a matter of fact, uh, because he is God, you may not know this, but he never sleeps. Okay, uh, he is he's always at work, punching the clock as it were, twenty four seven. He takes no breaks, no naps, no vacations, no time off. He has no need for sick days, no need for personal days, or even doctor's visits. Right? Uh, we see this throughout the scriptures. Psalm. 121 verses 3 and 4 says this, he will not let your foot be moved, he who keeps you will not slumber, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. Now, if that's God, think about the contrast uh, with us, right? We, we must sleep, even the busiest person in the world must sleep. We cannot exist without it. As a matter of fact, if we don't sleep, right, we lose, we lose our minds. We end up in a padded room somewhere, right? We got, we got to sleep. That's all part of how God made us. It's the way it is for us. It's the only thing we know. We know we have to. But it's not the case with God. He never needs to sleep. Think about this. I remember hearing uh, John Piper comment on this before, and I thought, and, and reading Charles Spurgeon comment on this as well. He said it uh, at least once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. That sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand, right? At least once a day, sometimes multiple times a day for the sake of naps, right? Meanwhile, while that's going on, think about it, God completely controls the world without us. He doesn't need us, right? A whole, a whole half of the hemisphere is asleep and he's still running everything, uh, sleep is like a broken record uh, that comes around with the same message every single time. Humans are not sovereign. Humans are not sovereign. Humans are not sovereign. God is, right? It just keeps repeating itself. And so God is never tired, always working, holding things together, keeping the planets, the stars in motion, keeping even our hearts beating at this very moment. And as we have tracked uh, through the book of Acts thus far, we've seen a lot of activity by God. Matter of fact, we've seen every member of the Trinity, we believe Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, that is what we believe as a church, but each of those members of the Trinity show up throughout the book of Acts. Think about that. We've seen the Father orchestrating events, calling men and women to himself, raising up servants of people and proclaimers of his gospel. We've seen Jesus bringing encouragement and admonishment. We see him intercede, we see him heal, we see him set captives free, we even see him intervene personally in the prison there. We've seen the Holy Spirit throughout this book, right? Empowering, blessing, gifting, bringing conviction, uh, emboldening, uh, emboldening his very people, regenerating people, enlightening people, sanctifying people. I mean, it's just a lot of activity. I and mean, we could say the book of Acts, even though the beginning of my, at least my copy here in the ESV, begins with, the title's called The Acts of the Apostles, which was a, not inspired by the way, it's a title given later, um, but really it's more like the acts of God, right? That's really what we find in the book of Acts. It's the acts of God in the church for the purpose of reaching the world with the gospel. And sometimes, as we've seen throughout Acts and as we know personally, sometimes these acts of God are painful, as I said last week, it's quite possible that the followers of Jesus, as we find ourselves here in Acts 8, would have just stayed in Jerusalem um, and not gone anywhere else besides that. Uh, as it was generally comfortable there, it was pretty predictable. They had some hardships, some, some problems with the authorities and such, but it was a quite successful church and ministry, we would say. Right? I think that's a pretty 
fair assessment of the first eight chapters of Acts. I think it was a pretty successful ministry and church. But Jesus, having a heart for the world, having a heart for missions, used the death of his servant Stephen to usher in a whole new wave of gospel witnesses. He brought about persecution that sent the church running into the surrounding districts and territories and nations without any leadership. The apostles stayed back at the home church, right? The first church, the only church, by the way, that's existing right now in this, in this time in history, the Jerusalem church. The martyrdom of Stephen, as we saw last week, resulted in the persecution of the church. And the persecution of the church resulted in the Christians being scattered out of Jerusalem to surrounding countries. And the scattering of Christians resulted in the preaching of gospel everywhere, right? This is all part of, as we read right at the very beginning, Acts 1-8, Jesus told them, you'll be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, that's where they were, and where'd they go? Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The book is unfolding just as Jesus said it would. <laughs> Even if the people didn't want to, he pushed them anyway, right? And they get out of their comfort zone, they get pushed out into these areas. So last week, we met uh, the character Philip. Philip was, Philip was just an ordinary guy. He was one of those servants back in Acts 6. Remember, there were some people who were helping the widows there and serving tables. Remember that in Acts 6? And so he's just a regular guy. Uh, he was a um, regular guy, read his Bible, prayed to Jesus, went to church. He served, carried a lunch pail, as it were. This is, this is who, who uh, Philip was. He was one of the many who were scattered and found themselves in a new territory with no apostles to necessarily lead them. And as Christianity would spread... So I've told you this many times, this is how it would be done. This is how it would be done. Uh, normal guys like this. Christianity didn't need some special guru or paid professionals to tell of its message. Uh, even at the end of the second century, there are some writings of, of Christians kind of at that time. And one of them wrote, one of the writers was boasting this. said, quote, we, speaking of the Christians, we have no altars, no temples, and no priesthood. Why would they say that? Well, because their altar was a cross their temple was the body of believers, and their priesthood was Jesus, right? They're like, we're, we're scattered everywhere all over the globe, right? And you can't stop it now. And so we find Philip in Acts 8. He was, he was first in Samaria, and there he tells people about Jesus, and, and people turn to Jesus in large numbers, right? This is very similar to John 4. When Jesus went to Samaria, there was a great hunger and interest uh, in, the, in the truth of the gospel. Matter of fact, it was so outstanding what happened in Acts chapter 8 there, that non-Jewish people, we, in the Bible the, the word is called Gentiles, okay, um, would come to Jesus that the Jerusalem church, again, the only church in existence, would actually send down Peter and John to go check this out. You mean, so what Jesus said is actually coming true. <laughs> the gospel is actually moving past us as Jewish people and into other surrounding you know, groups of people. And so Peter and John got to witness the Spirit of God come upon the Samaritans as God gave proof, right, to the Jerusalem church that, yeah, the gospel's for everybody. And yes, the gospel's going to go to the end of the, of the globe. This resulted in the apostles returning to Jerusalem. Um, and they celebrate there on their way. They tell people about Jesus. And that's where we pick up our study here in verse 26. And so in our time this morning, so if you've if you're been with us for a while or you're, you're used to how I preach here, this is what we do is go verse by verse. But usually I give you a little bit of an outline and we walk through that outline and we kind of apply it. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm gonna, we're going to look at the story together. So it may not be a lot of note taking right now. That's okay. We're going to look at the story verse by verse and then I'm going to summarize it at the end and give you some points of application. All right. So a little bit different. Mix it up a little bit. Change things up. Get a little crazy uh, this morning. So... Uh, so let's do that. Verse 26. 
It says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So Philip didn't return to Jerusalem with the apostles, which is what, honestly, I thought he would have done, or at least that's probably what I would have done. It's a lot safer, a lot more comfortable. All right, I did my missions work, okay? I went to the Samaritans. That was really hard, by the way. Um, I'll go back with you guys where it's nice and safe and comfortable. And so these guys, again, were the leaders. Philip is scattered like the other members of the church without any leaders. And you would think he'd be relieved, uh, get reconnected with them, but we find out that God has another mission for Philip. Right? He's got another spot for him to go to. And so, uh, so a messenger from the Lord, it says here, this is uh, an angel of the Lord, uh, says, uh, told Philip to go out into a desert. And notice the, the, the little comment there. It says, on a small, a small desert road. Basically, he's gonna, you're going to go someplace. He doesn't give him a GPS here, doesn't put the map in his Google Maps, right, to kind of find, okay, where my destination is, where am I going. Very similar in the Old Testament to a guy named Abraham. You may have heard of him. When God first met him, he told Abraham to go, right? And I'll, basically, I'll tell you. <laughs> you just go. It's a very similar here. Philip, um, you just need to go on this dirt road and just go. Doesn't tell him what's going to happen. Doesn't tell him what's going to be there. Just go. There were two roads, just so you know, that would go from Jerusalem, kind of the capital, the big city, right, where the temple was and all that, down to Gaza, by the way, modern, if you, in your map here, the Gaza Strip, okay, that area. Um, and so he was, he's supposed to go that way, about 90 miles. So this isn't a short trek, okay? I know the text just kind of moves right into the, what happened, but just so we know, he, you know, he walked that, you know? He didn't have a scooter or a bike or whatever else or a car. He walked it 90 miles. And it was two roads, there was the main highway, as it were, and there was this off-the-road, beaten path. Guess which one Philip took? Off-the-road, beaten path. The road less traveled. Verse 27. He rose and he went. So here he goes, 90 miles. And there was an Ethiopian, says a eunuch, a court official of Candace, who was in charge of all her treasure. He came to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, seating his chariot, and reading the prophet Isaiah. So on this road, we find an Ethiopian. He's part of the queen's cabinet here. Uh, Candace is her name. And he was, he was a eunuch, okay, just so you understand, meaning he was castrated, if I need to describe that or not, from his youth. This is kind of how it worked. Uh, if you wanted to be in the royal court, if you were a commoner, which is probably what he was originally, this is kind of part of the deal to get into the cabinet and to be kind of higher up in office. This is fairly common uh, for men uh, around that time, who were going to be groomed for kind of administrative leadership. And I just say, men, aren't we glad uh, that that tra tradition has passed, right? You want to be in leadership? Just come to my office for a minute. Let's have a talk, right? <laughs> um, so this is what would go on. And this guy was, uh, was so regarded by the queen, obviously he, he has her treasure. So he, he's got to be pretty high up the ranks, right? I mean, not just anybody's going to take the queen's treasure and, uh, and have that with them. And so he probably means he's a little bit older, Probably means he's been in her court for decades to be entrusted with such a responsibility. He had a lot of money, which speaks to the fact, by the way, that he had a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. All right? It would have been, there was no New Testament at this time, just so you know. The rest of this hasn't been written yet at this time. Uh, there really wasn't a copy of the Gospels, per se. And so we have this guy, he has a scroll, the whole scroll of Isaiah, which was really rare because, again, this wasn't like a, a, you know, overnight shipping from Amazon. You could order and it'd show up at your door, right? That's not how this worked. You had to have people hand copy the entire scroll. So it was expensive. So we know this guy had a lot of money, a lot of resources, okay? 
a lot of power probably. And so we also find here in the text, gives us more details. He, he went to Jerusalem and now he's coming back. So what does that mean? Well, this means that no doubt this guy was searching for truth. He was searching for the living God. Thought he could find that out at the temple. And no doubt, understanding Jewish history, understanding what has already happened in the Gospels with Jesus in the temple, it's very possible that his reception was not very warm. So how do you know that? Well, the Jewish laws forbid both eunuchs and Gentiles, which he was both, from going anywhere near the center of the temple. They could stay on the outskirts, kind of on the outside, but they couldn't go anywhere close. And knowing what we know about the story of Jesus in the, in the temple, we understand that many times that these Gentiles, right, who didn't know what was going on would get scammed, right, out of, uh, out of their money, get squeezed out of their money. And if they, if they wanted to get closer and they jumped over the wall, they would be killed. Matter of fact, there's a sign that's been, archaeology has actually excav excavated, there's the word, um, that actually tells, and you can see this, I think, up on the screen, there we go, that's actually the sign, and basically what you need to know what that sign says, it says, if you cross this barrier, you're going to die, okay, that's basically what it meant. So they were not allowed to get anywhere close. So I imagine, as, uh, as, as we, we see this, uh, what's happening here, and the look on this man's face that when Philip meets him, I imagine it being probably one maybe more of um, discouragement and dejection. He no doubt hoped he would find answers to his questions, which is no doubt why he's reading the book of Isaiah. And so he would, uh, he would resonate, no doubt. Um, Jerry, this is for you. He'd resonate, no doubt, with U2's lyrics, right, that uh, he had climbed the highest mountain. He had run through the, through the fields. He had scaled the city walls, but he still hadn't found what he was Come on, I was ready for like a nice one from you on that one to kind of scream out. So I found what he's looking for, right? I mean, that's just, this is what we got. This is what we see with this guy. He's searching. He's got resources. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. He's gone to the temple, probably got rejected there like that. It, that's what's going on with this man. All right, so verse 29. In light of all of that, we find Philip here. And Philip said, I'm sorry, Spirit said to Philip to go over and join the chariot. So Philip obeys. The Spirit's prodding. If you notice the text, and this is, you may not, you may just read right over this, but I think this is, it's interesting to me. It may not be super profound to you, but it literally says run, okay? So he, he's a runner, he's a track star, and all that stuff. So he's running over to the chariot. And um, you say, why did he run? Because the Ethiopian wasn't standing still. He was in a moving chariot. Matter of fact, the story, if you look at the, the verb, the, the language even, like the word returning in verse 28, the word join in verse 29 and the word going in verse 36 implies the chariot never stopped until the end of the story. So, so it, it, the implication is that the Holy Spirit's telling him to go catch up, keep pace, and talk to this guy as he's running, all right? So he's going beside the, uh, the chariot. He's just, this whole conversation here takes place with him pacing <laughs> beside the chariot, talking to this guy as he's, uh, he's running. Like, apparently good cardio is important uh, for missional living uh, in this way. So... So as Philip is pacing the chariot in our text here, he heard this guy reading Isaiah and thought, okay, I know what you're up to, Jesus. Uh, I see what's happening here, right? This is, this is an easy one. And, uh, and so he, and, and note this guy is not just reading Isaiah, by the way. He's specifically reading Isaiah 53, which talks about Jesus some 700, 750 years before Jesus actually came to earth 
talks about him as a suffering servant who's going to die in our stead for our sins. So, so right, right as he's reading Isaiah 53, you, you imagine he's reading, and, and up next to him comes Philip, you know, pacing. Anything I can, can I help you out, man? <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I help you out with what you're looking for there? And so this is, this is what's happening. So he's there. Imagine the guy's a little bit startled by, by Philip, you know, poking his head out there. Maybe he thought he was a robber. Remember, this is an off-the-beaten-path road, not a common road. Criminals are pretty common here. So verse 31, he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And so here he invites Philip to come up and sit with him in the moving chariot. So Philip has to kind of jump up as the chariot's moving and hop up there and have a seat. And so here we find, just a footnote here, that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, man, we're not going to understand the word of God. At this point, to this guy, it's black words on yellow papyrus. We say black words on white paper, but his wasn't that. We believe and embrace uh, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. What that means is that there's nothing wrong with the Bible. There's nothing wrong with the Scriptures. Um, it is perfectly clear. But we also believe another aspect of theology. We call this the noetic effect of sin. It has nothing to do with Noah, by the way, so scratch that from your memory. But uh, noetic effect of sin means that the sin has, when we fell, when humanity fell into sin, it affected not just our soul, it affected our minds and our bodies. Like it's a complete um, tainting of our entire being, okay? So even our understanding is tainted. And so the problem is not the scripture, the problem is us. But in many, many cases, just like this one, God uses his people who are filled with the Spirit of God to explain it. And that's what we find. Verse 32. The passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. And so here he quotes uh, from Isaiah 53. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I asked, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? <laughs> I mean, this is, we call this a, this is a soft toss right across the heart of the plate. Right? This, is, this is a home run, this is swing, bat flip, the whole thing. I mean, this is just an easy one. This is teed up for him. And so we find Philip jumping in the moving chariot, opens the scroll with him, shows him Jesus from Isaiah 53. It's fantastic, right? I mean, we find here, as you, you've heard me say many times, that Jesus is the key to unlock the meaning of the Old Testament. Without seeing Jesus in the Old Testament... Uh, then we have a book of rules with stories of how to illustrate to keep the rules, in some ways illustrate how not to keep the rules, depending on what story you're reading. But with Jesus, you have a book that is one story of redemption, that the rules then point to our need of him and his fulfillment of those very laws and rules. Jesus would say this himself, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? fulfill them, right? I came to fulfill those, to live those out, to live the life you couldn't live, and then die the death you should have died to save you. That was his mission. Then, as we understand Jesus is the, the point of the Old Testament, then the stories there, all those stories we read about, then point to his fulfillment as the true and greater hero of the Bible. He's the, he's the main character. Uh, this is why Jesus would say things in the New Testament like, Something better than Solomon is here. Someone greater than Jonah has arrived, right? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Moses spoke of me, right? That's why he always said those things. Uh, he would say this in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, meaning you think that in obeying them and implementing the morals of the stories that you'll find life. Jesus says, uh, no, it is they the very scriptures bear witness of me. It's all pointing to me, is what Jesus is saying. So verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, hey, 
You know, here's some water. We'll prevent you from being baptized. He commanded, had the chariot stop. There was the first time the chariot stopped. And they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, technical note for a moment. Some versions add a confession of the eunuch. If you, if you have an ESV like I do, you'll notice that verse 37 is actually missing. There's a footnote, and you can, if you have glasses, maybe I'm getting older, I can't even read it. But the little small, small print at the bottom, you can see comment about, hey, some manuscripts add this. I don't believe... The confession is part of the original text. Some people debate that. Could be. You want to have more questions about that, you can talk to me later. Nonetheless, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, this guy understood that he came to Christ and subsequently was baptized as a result. He wasn't baptized to become a Christian. He right? wasn't baptized to be saved. It was a result of that. So the eunuch returns to Ethiopia rejoicing, he says in verse 39. And the history tells us, um, actually, he became a missionary to his very people there in Ethiopia. And the Holy Spirit then, all of a sudden, I don't know, beams up Philip like Scotty? I don't know, something like that. Um, that may be an old reference for some of the younger people, on beaming up like Scotty. But um, places him in this city called Azotus, which is modern-day Ashdod in Israel, and that's about 50 miles north. So, I mean, Philip's like, he's making, he's, cutting, he's making some ground to continue to spread the gospel. So that's kind of the story. So what do we learn from this? There's really two major things we learn. Number one is that God is at work, which we talked about at the beginning. Secondly, we find the gospel at work. So God's at work in and through us, and the gospel's at work in and through us. Let's look at each of those. Number one, God is at work. Though God, as the Bible describes him, is eternal and sits outside of time, he still works in time and orchestrates events and situations in time. Though he is sovereign and king over the whole universe, he is still personal and he's still, he's still near and he's still involved, right? Listen to uh, Psalm 73. Verse 28 says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Isaiah 57, verse 15, thus says, The one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, he says, I dwell in a high and holy place, also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God is both, um, as Sesame Street would say, near and far. Right? <laughs> he's both close and he's also distant. He's, he's very near and present and active, and yet he's also outside orchestrating sovereign over all things. So God is orchestrating the actual events of Philip's life. He had him at the right place at the right time. Think about how coincidental, quote unquote, was it that this guy just happened to be reading the Bible and he just happened to be reading Isaiah and he just happened to be reading Isaiah 53 and Philip just happened to show up at that exact same moment, right? This was truly a divine appointment. And God has divine appointments for you every single day. If you take time to see them, right? Instead of a lot of times what we do is complain about our situations and circumstances. We need to open our eyes and actually look around us for who, who is God putting in my path today? Who is God putting in front of me today to, to, to care for, to love for, to speak to, to talk to? Like, who is that, right? Another thing we find here is that God puts you in places that sometimes don't make, make sense to you, right? Uh, Philip, I'm sure, was not understanding this whole 90-mile dirt road thing, Okay? I mean, he was having, from the text, obviously, a very successful ministry back in Samaria. So why in the world would God move him from there and move him to this place? It didn't make any sense. You know, this is why, again, he's God and we are not, right? He had a plan for this. 
And so God is actively at work in your life today. He's scheduling divine appointments every day with people for you to meet. Are you blowing those appointments off? He has people um, for you to serve, speak to. Are you, are you seeing them? Or, or, you, or can you not see them because you're too consumed maybe with yourself and your own situation? It might be a roommate. It might be a coworker. It might be a spouse, a neighbor, the guy that walks by your house every single day, your children. I mean, there's all kinds of people that God puts in your path each day. Think about the ways the Spirit of God is working and moving and prodding you, okay? And there's three things we find from Philip here that God is working in you to do. Number one is to engage, okay? Engage. When the Spirit told Philip to go and join the chariot, it's apparent that Philip wasn't too eager to go talk to this guy. Otherwise, the command is kind of pointless, right? He may have never spoken to someone completely not from his tribe. Plus, there's a good chance that this person in the chariot up here ahead of him might think he's a robber, because we know that, that that actually happened on these roads. Um, you can read about that. Uh, the Good Samaritan story that Jesus gave is a very similar road to what they're on right now. So the Spirit had already pushed him out of his comfort zone to go to Samaria, and now he's getting pushed even more. And the Spirit is always pushing us to love and reach people around us because, you know what, honestly, sadly, it just doesn't come natural to many of us. Uh, we're not deliberate, but at best maybe accidental, <laughs> Um, in, our, uh, in, in our engagement with people. We only engage maybe if someone maybe makes it as obvious as this, right? Um, can you help me? Um, what does it mean to be a Christian? Can you tell me who is Jesus, right? We're like, oh, okay, I think maybe I could do that one. But to go join the chariots, as it were, of people is just too much. But that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do, to go join the chariots. You say, what, what does that mean? I think it's interesting. The word join that is used in this text is the word for uh, close, being close together to unite. It's even used for glue. Matter of fact, when Jesus would describe marriage and would reference back to Genesis 2, when he would describe a husband as to leave his, leave his father, mother, and be what? Joined to his wife. Same word, okay? To be committed, close, contact, glued together is the idea. Matter of fact, the same word's used in Luke 15 to describe the prodigal who was absolutely desperate for a job. And the, the word there says he, he clung to a man to help you know, to give him a job to feed swine. He was very desperate. He clung to him. And so this word has some idea of desperation to it and also has some idea of risk to it. Okay, this is pretty applicable to us. The Spirit wants Philip to not go grab this guy and bring him back to the Jerusalem church where one of the church leaders might could talk to him. He's not actually to take him anywhere, but actually go jump into the chariot with him and, as it were, we would say, go on his turf. Right? The Spirit is prodding us to go to people where they are and not expect them to necessarily come to us. You understand that, right? Part of our, our call as followers of Jesus is to go to people and not wait for them to come to us. Um, you know, where you think about where can you go that maybe is uncomfortable, maybe a little bit out of your comfort zone, that you can meet people who don't know Jesus, who, who need to be loved and served, right? That's kind of the push and the application to engage. Number two, listen. It's been said, uh, we crave it two ears, one mouth, for a reason, right? A few weeks ago, in our uh, Christ and Culture Conversations class we did, we talked about, uh, in which I think you'll agree with this, that our world is pretty reactive these days, right? Uh, easily triggered, as it were, by, by things, and quick to respond in frustration and anger, right? We're super sensitive people these days, right? We, we get angry about, about anything it's said, um, Actually, Eric Phillips in our, in our class summed it up best. I think we were kind of wrapping up our class, kind of summarizing. He says, I, you know, I, th I think Jesus wants us to be better listeners. I think that's a good application to take, take home in our current culture. 
Right? If we just listened better, we'd have more opportunities to talk about Jesus, and that's true. I mean, think about it. If we just applied James 1.17, we'd have a whole mission field around us probably because it's, no one's doing this. Listen, James 1.19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That is completely opposite of the culture in which we live. We need to be better. We should be the best listeners as followers of Jesus, right? We should be better listeners of people around us so that we know how uh, to apply the gospel to their lives. You know, Philip demonstrated patience and concern for this man, and as a result, he asks Philip questions and even extends an invite for Philip to jump into the chariot with him. Right? We want to be invited into people's lives, then we need to listen. Not because we're, we're just, you know, not because we're just like them, but because we demonstrate a genuineness and a love for them that no one else in this false, pretentious, selfish culture will do. Right? We live in a place where people care about people um, only to get something from them, right? to get their point across or to make a connection to advance their own kind of career or agenda. How well do you listen to the pain, the hurt, the confusion, and the suffering of people around you? Right? You apply that piece, you'll have people asking you questions, okay? Because no one does that. Number three, explain. So the Spirit's prodding us to, God's at work, and the Spirit's prodding us here to engage, to listen, and then to explain. Philip, uh, the Spirit uh, then fills Philip with his words to explain to this guy Jesus from the Bible. And I don't think, by the way, that the Spirit's like zapped him with instant information that he didn't have before. Like as if Philip had never read Isaiah 53 and supernaturally he got this insight into Isaiah 53. Um, I think we find that, uh, that Philip knew his Bible well. He could point people to Jesus about anywhere from the scriptures. And that's what happens, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't usually pour into the well of your soul unknown information in order to pull unknown information out. Typically, he usually pulls from whatever is in there. So what's in the well of your soul, Right? What of the scriptures are in your soul that the Spirit of God in an engagement and a conversation can pull from you to give, right? That's a challenge, right? What's the, what's the application here? Read your Bible. <laughs> that's, a, that's an easy application here. Know, can you point people to Jesus from anywhere in the scriptures, right? That's what he did. All right, lastly, number two, the gospel's at work. Not just God is at work, but the gospel's at work in us, okay, through us. We find this passage the gospel is hard at work in the life of Philip. It's really the only explanation for what happens. Philip is a changed man. And the gospel has worked in his soul to make him more like Jesus. We see the, the trademarks of the life of Jesus in the life of Philip here. And the gospel, so we understand why the gospel is so important. The gospel is not just the front door on the life of, you know, the Christian life, right? It's how you get in. That is true. It is definitely the front door. But it's also the whole house. Do you understand that? We, we don't just like, oh, yeah, I did that thing. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, died for my sin. Okay, good. Let's move on from that and let's dig into deeper things. It's like, no, the gospel is the deeper thing. The more you dig deep into that, the more profound an effect that has upon your own soul so that you're transformed. Okay? It's needed every day. And it's what the Holy Spirit used to, uses to make us more like Jesus. And look how the gospel changes you and how it changes Philip. It changes us too. Number one, the gospel fights fear. And Philip took the road less traveled here. It was a long and dangerous road to take. Again, the more widely used one was much safer as it was full of people and that was, there was safety in numbers. It was quite common, again, these days, the robbers would be hiding out. Again, read the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus gave. 
This was a common road for that kind of thing. And so in this story, Philip likely doesn't know anything about this road. Think about being him for a moment. He is not from this area, okay? Uh, He doesn't know the area very well. And remember also what's happening. People are gunning for Philip's life, right? We already read that back at the beginning of chapter 8. Saul was ravaging the church. They're going house to house. They're grabbing Christians. They're arresting them, throwing them in prison, and they're dying. They're killing them. No doubt, the word has gone out that Philip is pretty good. He had a lot of people in the Samaria respond to him, right? You can imagine that if there was like the old, I imagine the old Western, you know, most wanted picture is like Philip, most wanted, you know, dead or alive, preferably dead. It's kind of what's going on, right? So, so he's got some reasons to be afraid here. Uh, he doesn't know what's down this road. There could be robbers. There could be people there waiting to kill him. He doesn't know. And so it's interesting, though, you realize that God doesn't tell Philip what's up the road. He, he just tells him to go. I mean, you, you could, you could, the Spirit could have told him that. He obviously tells him later to jump in the chariot. I mean, what's going to be around that corner? It's going to be down this road. Is it going to be Saul and his henchmen, right, waiting around the corner to execute him? Is this going to be the end of his life? Would it be fellow Christians, maybe, a group of them that had scattered? Maybe they were gathered together in prayer around the corner, you know? Would it be a five guys? I don't know. Grab an Ibex burger, because they, you know, that's what he would have back then. After all, he was starving. It was a long road. This is where my mind goes. Sorry. It was a long walk. But he had no clue, bottom line. He had no clue what was around the corner, what was coming up, and, uh, but he went. He obeyed, no questions asked. Why? Because Philip was sure, and this is where the gospel is so important, Philip was sure that in the gospel, Jesus had gone from being against him to being for him. That the God of the universe, because of the finished work of Jesus, was now on his side. And Jesus plus Philip is a majority no matter what was around that corner. You see what I'm saying? That's how the gospel affects your heart. Nothing would befall him except for his own good and the glory of his God, even if that was death. That, that's how the gospel transforms your thinking. Philip could trust Jesus and not be afraid because the gospel meant that God was working all things for good, even the things that appeared harmful. Philip could trust Jesus and not be afraid because the one thing that could not be said was that Jesus didn't love him because he already proved that, right, on the cross. Philip could trust Jesus and not be afraid because Jesus was not still in that grave. He was alive. The gospel helped him fight fear, and it would also help you fight fear when you get confident in the fact of God's love for you in Christ. Number two, the gospel also, this is an important point as well, revolves, uh, resolves sorry, our racism. What Philip found on that road was probably not on his radar, an Ethiopian. That was one thing to reach someone who was at least partially Jewish. That was Samaritans, right? They were half Jewish is what they would call them. Uh, it, was, it was another to reach someone who completely not Jewish now, someone completely of a different race, a different country um, in this culture especially. As a matter of fact, you couldn't get any different than these two guys. I mean, these guys were radically different people. The appearance of these two guys reminds me of something along uh, these lines. I think there's a picture of these two. Something like this. This is kind of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, okay? You got a Jewish middle-class blue-collar guy, and you have an African upper-class white-collar guy. You would ne- these guys, you would never see these two guys hanging out together in this culture. I would remind you, too, that the typical Jewish prayer from a guy, a male Jewish prayer, would wake up in the morning and would say, God, thank you for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Hmm, this is a good life, right? That's what they would say. Thank you. I'm not, I don't want anything to do with anybody, any, any people of another, another race. 
but one of the first conversion stories, and this, and this, this is so fascinating, one of the first conversion stories in Acts is of a Jewish man leading an African man to Jesus. Philip was not prejudiced because he had been melted by the gospel. He didn't fear their differences because Jesus had transformed him with his truth and his love. Prejudice that resides in us. And it had been transformed here. The gospel had broken that in him. Even Peter, uh, matter of fact, later in the book of uh, Galatians, needed to hear the gospel again to break him of his prejudice and racism. Matter of fact, we'll get to Acts 8 and we'll see this in Acts, Acts sorry, we're in Acts 8. Acts 10, we're going to see this very same thing. Like, really? Hold on. The gospel's going to go to someone not Jewish here? Are you sure it's okay to eat the bacon? If that makes no sense, by the way, we'll, we'll get there in that story later. But listen to this, Galatians 2. When Cephas, that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I, this is Paul writing, opposed him to his face. I would like to have seen this. It was a throwdown in the church, okay, between Peter and Paul. Because he stood condemned. Well, that's a strong language, Paul. For before certain men came from James, James, pastor in Jerusalem, kind of lead pastor in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he, was, he drew back and separate himself, fearing the circumcision party. So it, this is like total junior high lunch table kind of thing, right? You're sitting with your friends, the cool kids come, you're like, oh, I'm not going to sit with these kids anymore, I'm going to sit with the cool kids, and he gets over and sits with the cool kids. Okay, that's, but it's more racial than it is cool kids, is kind of what's going on. And it says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, Peter. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So this is interesting. Paul, Paul didn't bring up in this conversation the no racism rule, as it were. He didn't, he didn't pull that out, which is true. Peter was breaking that, as it were. But it was, it was the, the point was what? What, did Peter, what happened to Peter? What was, the, what was his heart problem? He forgot gospel. He forgot grace. You see, in the gospel, we find that who we are before God is all the same regardless of race or culture. We all share the same status, condemned sinners. <laughs> so when we're saved purely by grace, we're able to look at our fellow man, our fellow woman, and not judge them based on, for this example, the color of their skin. So when we get the gospel, we see, see that the world is not broken up into good people and bad people. The world's not broken up into white people or black people. The world's not broken up into rich people and poor people. The gospel's broken up into unrepentant and repentant people, right? That's it. That's the only category there is. The gospel destroys categorization of people. Number three, gospel squashes superiority. Very similar. If the cross is the center of your being, then your whole identity will be changed. And one of the evidences of this is that you will want to identify with people that previously you didn't want to identify with or have anything to do with. We all need an identity, okay, in, uh, for, in different cultures here. So in, in a conservative, maybe more religious cultures, identities are, try, are tried to be built on keeping, maybe keeping the rules of the family, keeping the rules of the church, keeping the rules of the community. And you feel good about yourself if you keep the rules, in more of a relativistic, kind of non-religious cultures, it's usually based on getting a name for yourself with how much, maybe how much money you make, uh, where you live, what you drive, who you know, that kind of thing. But uh, we have to be somebody, and, and identity searching is an extremely competitive sport, okay? We're all searching for that. But notice, in both these groups of people, where they're trying to find an identity, they're both trying to do it based on their own performance, just different performances, appeasing different groups of people. This results in having to feel superior to others. If, for example, 
If you feel you're hardworking and, and that's your identity, you'll be able to look down on people you perceive as lazy. If you feel like you take care of your body with food and exercise, you look down on people who you feel like they don't take care of their body. If you feel like you're, you do a good job at parenting, you look down on people who you feel do a bad job at parenting. Right? If you own an iPhone, you look down on people who have a Samsung. Right? If you're a Microsoft person, you look down on Apple people. Uh, if you graduated from a good school like Purdue, you look down on people that go to IU. Right? I mean, this is kind of... <laughs> Sorry. You get the idea, though, right? I mean, this is... You, once you find your identity in something, you've you got to oppose somebody, look down at somebody else because your identity is in this. Now... If you're saved by grace, that changes everything. If that's your identity, at the core of your soul is grace, if what is of value to you, listen carefully, if what's of value to you is what has been done for you, not what you have done, then you, you don't have anybody to look down to, right? It's nothing you have done. Your identity's not based on you. You know it's all of grace. This is why Philip could risk his life, give his time to this man. He wasn't any better than him, and that was amazing, coming from a Jewish man in this culture. Lastly, number four, the gospel saves sinners. The gospel converts people. We see this in the text, right? It gives them what they always wanted but never could grasp in the world. Joy, forgiveness, peace, righteousness, hope, identity. This Ethiopian man knew that there was something great, something mysterious, something profound about this passage that he was reading, and it probably had stumped him many times. It just didn't make sense. And remember his story now. He was a eunuch because he, he couldn't be in high, high office in Ethiopia without doing this. If you want to be in the royal family, then you had to do this, and this is what he did. He was a commoner, probably turned high officer, who gave up everything in hopes of being somebody. But we know this hasn't worked for him. Why? <laughs> because he's going to Jerusalem to worship. He's returning back again, which is extremely long distance and extremely dangerous. He's risking his life to find truth. He was hungry as he heard and read of the God of the Bible. And yet, as he arrived, after thousands of miles, he was probably rejected and turned away because not only was he a Gentile, he was also a eunuch. He probably felt hopeless. He probably felt unclean. No doubt, uh, he had read Isaiah already. And he would come across a passage just a few chapters later that would have just pumped hope through his veins. Listen to this, Isaiah 56, three chapters later. Verse three, let not the foreigner, that would be him, who has joined himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch, that was him, say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This guy probably felt like a, the, the language of dry tree. What does that mean? Unable to have children. In this culture, prime, number one, Value, culture, children, right? Having children was the main thing. If you couldn't have children, it was, it was bad. And he had given up hope of finding salvation here. He had, he had tried to find salvation. He gave up hope in that one. And so he tried to find it in politics, money, and fame, right? He had all those things. But here it reads that he will get a name, get an identity that's better than the number one thing in the culture, which was sons and daughters. There is something out there greater than what can be found on this earth, but how could he find it? How can God accept him, right, and who he is? Don't you see how now Isaiah 53 met him right where he is? In that passage, we read about one who had been cut off and excluded, just like a Gentile eunuch. And it looks in the passage to have been voluntary, voluntarily. Who would ever do such a thing? Right? For no return, no apparent gain, humbly submit themselves to injustice and death 
That's what this guy's reading. It was at that moment Philip popped his head up beside the chariot. <laughs> tells him about Jesus. And he tells him about Jesus, the one who became unclean that he might become clean, who was cut off that he might be brought in, who paid the penalty of his sin on the cross so that he could be accepted by God because of the work of Jesus. God was offering this man a name and an identity that was better than sons and daughters, an identity and a name that was better than what you find in politics or money or possessions. He was offering to make him a son of God by grace. This is why Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I don't know what you're searching for this morning. I don't know if you've ever met Christ. But I can tell you that whatever you're finding, trying to find identity in, a name in, it ain't gonna work. Be it sons or daughters, right? Be it money, be it be it power, be it fame, be it possessions, be it whatever it is. And I could, can I tell you something this morning too? When it says right there in Jeremiah, God's not playing hide and seek with you, okay? He's not that hard to find. He's here. He's present with us right now. And he's available to you to call upon to be saved, right? That's the invitation. Stop banking your life on your own efforts. You think joy is just around the corner, but when you get around that corner, there's another corner and another corner and another corner. Satan's playing, playing with you, dangling unappeasable desires and unsatisfying trinkets, and you've bought the lie, hook, line, and sinker. I invite you to turn from your suicidal love affair with the world and turn to the one you've been made for. Turn to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? As we go to communion, this is an opportunity, if you don't know Christ, communion's not for you, it's a, but it, this invitation is for you to come to him. If you have questions, we'd love to answer those. I'll be behind that rock wall at the end of the service. If you are a follower of Jesus, take an opportunity to take this story. There's lots of practical application, lots of soul searching of like God, and, and, you know, God's at work in you, the gospel's at work. How is God at work in you? How's the gospel transforming you? What do you need to talk to about God? What do you need to confess, repent, ask God to help you with? This is what communion is for right now. So when we take a moment of quiet, we'll take those little cups there, we'll open them, after a few minutes, try to, try, try to resist the, the urge to peel it open right now, okay? Just hold it and just be quiet. It's okay. Quiet's good. And we'll sing a song. When you're ready, you can take the bread and take the juice. Jesus told us to do it in remembrance of him. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. Nothing magical about that little cup. But it is a way to us remember Jesus so we leave this place empowered by his grace and love for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. This is a fun passage uh, it's outstanding to read about and to see, God, how you transformed Philip. I think about him, we first met him back in Acts 6. He was just, he was just a servant. Yeah, he just was ready to do whatever you wanted him to do. I, d I doubt he ever thought he would end up in Samaria, and then he'd end up in meeting this Ethiopian on, the, on this road, and then he'd end up in another place as the passage ends. Uh, God, he's, you're doing wonderful things in and through him, I'm sure, beyond his imaginations. I think about that. I think about Ephesians 3, how, God, you do exceedingly, abundantly, and beyond all we could ever ask or think. I, I pray you do that in us. I pray now that for each one who's sitting here who thinks maybe pretty minimally about what they can do um, or about what you can do through them, God, I pray that they would, um, they would have hope. They would see that, God, you can do exceedingly, abundantly, and beyond all they could ask or think. You could squash the fear. You can remove 
uh, the barriers that are in their way. And God, you can send them out on mission in a way that they never imagined. And I pray you do that. I pray you move in each of our hearts in that way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.